Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. It's been a long time since we've actually gathered together in this space, it feels like. It's been two weeks, and I feel like I seem to always have the immense pleasure of bringing us back together after we've been gone for two weeks, Um, because I think the last time was after family meal and Memorial Day, and so we're just kind of clearing off the cobwebs and getting reacquainted with what we're talking about, and of course, we've been going through the book of Galatians. Um, as you recall, uh, but it may feel a little bit rusty right now um, because it's been a little while. And so uh, to kick things off today, we're going to do something just a little different. We're going to watch a very quick video and we're not even going to watch the whole thing because I don't want to spoil. I mean, you could read it yourself what's happening in Galatians you know, 5 and 6, but I don't want to spoil it for you um, in case that you're you know, waiting with bated breath every single week. Um, so um, we'll go ahead and watch this really quick video. It's from um, this organization called The Bible Project, and I know probably some of you in this room are familiar with it. Uh, you may hear Tim Mackey's voice and, and immediately feel some feelings, um, and so I just want to make sure that you know it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling about that. Um, but it actually is a really, really good summary. Um, and, you know, with, you know, one or two things as an exception, I think they do an, an amazing job of really capturing kind of the heart of the message of Galatians in, in the first four chapters. So we'll go ahead and watch about six minutes of that. So enjoy. Um, all right. So my work here is done. Any questions? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, um, there's definitely a lot to dig into, and we're just right in the thick of it. We're right in the thick of Paul's argument um, regarding the conflict that existed in the Galatian church, and a lot of that um, is centered around Paul's telling and Paul's view of the law. And and one thing that the video does that I, I probably wouldn't that I probably wouldn't do personally. And it's not wrong, it's just different. I think that in making this video and in effort to make it simpler, I think what they did was they took some information from, you know, how Paul portrays the law in Romans, in the book of Romans that was written later, and we'll talk about this too, but kind of impose it on on Paul's, you know, moment as he's writing to the Galatian church, which again is not a bad thing, but I think that Paul has a very particular treatment of the law and what he thinks and feels and says about the law in Galatians that is really important not to miss. And so uh, so we're going to try and hone in um, on Galatians in particular um, and see, see the treatment that Paul gives to the law and what that means for us now. So, you know, aside from giving us that really, you know, tidy recap um, of, of Galatians 1 through 4, um, you know, it, it does that video really did, you know, start that conversation about what we mean when we say the law. So I'm just curious, and the video kind of defined it for us, but I'd love to hear from you. What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase in this Christian context, the law? Yes, color us all confused, right? Because it's not consistent. And to Aaron's point, it really, it really often, when we kind of zoom out and just and just observe the church, you know, you know, w- without judgment, but just kind of looking at what's going on across different denominations and different interpretations, 
it's kind of whatever whatever seems to to create the most safe or controlled environment for whoever that environment is for. That seems to be how we pick and choose what rules we follow, what rules we don't. And so that just further underscores the complication, I think, of, you know, our understanding of the law and what it's for. And, you know, even just looking, you know, just a quick smattering, a quick survey of, you know, some of the verses that, you know, Jesus, you know, says about the law, but also other New Testament, you know, verses about the law, you know, unfold that, that you know, underscore that confusion even more for us, I think. In Matthew five seventeen. Um, and of course, Matthew, um, one of the one of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished." So you almost see Jesus, you know, elevating, elevating the law and, and making sure to, in his context, as he's, as he's speaking to his fellow Jewish people, elevate the law and, and tell them it's not, it's not going anywhere. I'm fulfilling it, but it's not going anywhere. Jesus says later on in Matthew chapter seven, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets. And we actually talk about that verse quite a bit, but that's, that's one of the best examples that we have of, of this fulfillment of the law that Jesus is talking about, that it's fulfilled by loving your neighbor as yourself and loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And later on in Luke, another account of Jesus' life on earth, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, referring to John the Baptist, since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. And my last reference, I swear, um, comes from the book of John. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And now enters Paul, <laughs> who, you know, is of Jewish descent. And he, in, in the, the parts of the New Testament that he has written, seems to have his own very different view of the law as well, correct? We kind, of, we kind of get a little bit of angst from Paul, and that's to put it very, very mildly. Um, very, very mildly. And again, you know, the video kind of referred to the law as a strict school teacher, and I, and I know I've heard that, and I think a lot of us in the room have kind of heard that analogy, but, but like Rob Calger preached a couple of weeks ago, really the language is much stronger, and it's more like a slave master or a taskmaster, that that's, that's the treatment of the law um, that we receive. And so his language, his opinion about the law is very, is, is very complex. And, and the theologian N.T. Wright um, points out that some scholars seem to think that Paul, again, the author of Galatians and a Jew, has a negative view of the law in the book of Galatians and, for instance, a positive view in the book of Romans. But like most things, I think this is probably a bit reductionistic because what N.T. Wright goes on to say is that it's not really about Paul having a positive or negative view in one or another instance. Instead, the way Paul talks about the law is to help drive home whatever point he's trying to make about the nature of Jesus' work in contrast uh, and what's new that, as opposed to the expression of faith that the, that the Jews carried for some time. So here's the example. In Galatians, what's the big conflict? 
You have Christian converts of Jewish descent telling Christian converts of non-Jewish descent that they need to be circumcised and observe all aspects of Mosaic law in order to belong to the family of God. So knowing that Paul believes that Christians belong to the family of God based on Jesus' redemptive work alone and not external conformity to Jewish law, it makes sense that Paul wouldn't necessarily do much in this, in this context to make the law seem appealing to people. That's not the point that he's trying to make. So it's not really his concern to, to elevate the law or to make sure we're not forgetting the law. His big point is that the law in the church of Galatia is superseding the work that Jesus did. And that's a problem. And so that's the problem he's trying to solve. And so that's why he talks about the law the way he does. He's not trying to contradict Jesus, obviously, but in this context, in the church at Galatia, in the churches in Galatia, he is trying to bring them back from the brink because that's where they are. And his language is serious because that's what he believes. He believes these churches are on the brink of losing their understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for them. So when we pick up Paul's argument at the start of chapter four, he keeps expanding this idea of how the freedom and family that Jesus offers is far superior than anything the law could ever provide to us. So we're going to go ahead and jump into that text right now. Um, and we're going to go ahead and start. Um, it's going to be on the screen for you. It's a little bit of a different translation, um, but you're always more than welcome um, to, find, uh, to find these passages in your own Bible as well and follow along. Let me put it like this. As long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, even if, in fact, he is the master of everything. He is kept under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. Well, it's like that with us. When we were children, we were kept in slavery under the elements of the world. But when the time of fulfillment arrived, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God sent out the spirit of his son into our hearts, calling out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, you are an heir through God. Now, this isn't the point of the passage, but I think it's worth noting that there's a, there's a lot of male language re reference to being a son. And of course, that is inclusive of all of us. Um, in this context at this time, it makes sense for him to use that gendered language, but I assure you that is inclusive of all of us. But Paul really seems to be doing something interesting and significant here. And through these verses, it's really subtle. It's really subtle, but he's calling us back to the story of Israel's exodus. The people of Israel have found themselves under this oppressive rule enslaved to the Egyptians and like everything you said, they, I mean, there, there, was, there, there was wrongdoing as far as the eye could see and oppression as far as the eye could see with, the, with coming from at the hands of the Egyptians. Then Moses, appointed by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, does so after a series of utter and complete miracles, which we just talked about, including but not limited to the parting of the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk across on dry land to safety and, and also concurrently basically eliminating the threat of the Egyptian army. 
So Paul is describing the nature of our slavery, which isn't about being indentured to build pyramids or to serve kings, but it is about being enslaved to the, quote, elements of the world. And and what Paul means by that is this. The Greek words that he's using to describe these elements carry a connotation not only of the elements of the natural world, and in the ancient view, that could, you know, that could be things like earth, wind, and fire, ring a bell, stars, etc. Basically, these things that inspire awe and fear. And the reason the creation of pagan gods was made to help us address our powerlessness against these sometimes terrifying and terrible elements. And thereby leading to that misplaced worship, that idolatry in order to control our effort to control our environment. But Paul goes a step further, and this is probably where a lot of people would say, wow, Paul's opinion of the law is not good. Because what he does is he takes it a step further. And like we see Paul talk about in Galatians chapter three, he seems to be inferring that the law acts even like an agent of idolatry in this very same way that people can be just as tempted to throw themselves into believing that following the law can bring control of the elements, control of the unknown, the things that make us afraid and weak and vulnerable. And he makes a similar argument in the book of Romans, and he's with a lot softer touch (laughs) because he wrote it after Galatians. And he talks about how the law itself isn't sinful. And he certainly isn't saying that now but he describes humans' propensity to look for justification through it. Just like we would any other God, any other pagan God, no difference. And that we try to find our assurance in it, to find freedom from fear in it, to find our redemption from sin and death through it, to find our belonging, depending on how well we can follow it. And judging others' acceptance, (laughs) like that's our job, based on whether or not they can follow it too. And this, this is the slavery that Paul is talking about. This is the exodus that we need. And so Paul says, but when the time of fulfillment arrived, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent out the spirit of his son into our hearts, calling out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, you are an heir through God. So in the Exodus that Moses led, the people of Israel got the law or the Torah, the Jewish Bible, as a way to learn how to live into God's intention for the human race, to reflect his beauty, his creativity, his dignity and his love and his service. And in the Exodus that Jesus leads, this actually becomes reality. He himself is the fulfillment of this law. In the Exodus that Moses led, there was a tabernacle, a physical place where God would dwell. But in the Exodus led by Jesus, he indwells us by his spirit. And this is how we are truly justified. This is how we know that we are God's people adopted as beloved children, not because of circumcision or dietary restrictions or observing holidays or ceremonies properly or first century or any other century's uh, virtue signaling. (laughs) It's the unfettered faith that Jesus is these things and gives these things to us freely. We're adopted. The spirit of God in our hearts 
because Jesus was born under the law in the context of Israel's rich story with God to fulfill the law's requirements and to free us to live by the spirit together, not just one of us as individuals, but together, together embodying in this world, every ounce of God's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And he was born of a woman to show us that it was for all of us. No one has ever existed for whom that is not true. Until we start cloning people, we're all born of women. That's just a fact. So Jesus' family is not just of one race, not just one class of people, not just one culture, not just one creed. Jesus is building a family of all people and all cultures for all time. Let's keep going with Galatians chapter four. It'll be on the next slide. However, at that stage, you didn't know God. And so you were enslaved to beings that in their proper nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God or better to be known by God, how can you turn back again to that weak and poverty stricken lineup of elements that you want to serve all over again? You are observing days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you. Perhaps my hard work with you is all going to be wasted. Quite uplifting, yes? Um, so hearing that, I want to hear from you. In what ways do you personally, or in a broader context, do we as people collectively keep turning back to those quote-unquote weak and poverty-stricken means of trying to guarantee our belonging into God's family? So Paul continues on the next slide. Become like me because I became like you, my dear family. This is my plea to you. You didn't wrong me. No, you know that it was through bodily weakness that I announced the gospel to you in the first place. You didn't despise or scorn me, even though my condition was quite a test for you. But you welcomed me as if I were God's angel, as if I were the Messiah, Jesus. What happened to the blessing you had then? Yes, I can testify that you would have torn out your eyes if you'd been able to and given them to me. So have I become your enemy in telling you the truth? The other lot are eager for you, but it's not in a good cause. They want to shut you out so that you will then be eager for them. Well, it's always good to be eager in a good cause. And not only when I'm there with you. My children, I seem to be in labor with you all over again until the Messiah is fully formed in you. I wish I were there with you right now and could change my tone of voice. I really am at a loss about you. Whew. The fatherly disappointment is ripe. <laughs> it, is, it is a lot. Even reading it out loud, I've just, I just feel like I'm shrinking. Um, it's N.T. Wright. Mm -hmm. It's very, very good. Now, so it's easy to kind of get lost. I, I, at the beginning of this, this passage, he describes things that we really don't have a lot of concrete 
answers for and for which there are a lot of theories. And that's, you know, what this bodily weakness is that he's referring to. And, and, and really, it's, it's not particularly central to his point here. I just want to address it because he talks about it at length. And so it feels like it's something we should at least talk about somewhat. Um, but what he could be talking about there is bearing the injuries of persecution when he came to their church. And, and that that could pose difficulty for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, perhaps that he was somewhat disabled um, or even disfigured, which was really difficult for, um, for the Near East people to, to accept. Because um, often in their worldview, that was a sign of, that could be a sign of sin. It could be a sign of, um, you know, grounds for, for being cast out for rejection. And so this was a big shift for folks actually was, you know, to, to accept people, you know, regardless of some of those external factors. But in the face of whatever state he was in, the Galatians identified him as a friend, not a foe, and they were friendly back to him. And that's the greater point. And that's what he's trying to draw on there. He's reminding the Galatian churches that he's their friend and they can trust him. And that's much like what he was doing at the beginning of the letter in chapter one as well. So by contrast, and he's trying to draw this contrast here, the people who have tried to lead the Galatians astray, the circumcision party, as it were, these were not friends, but they were foes. And I wanna read this, this verse again, because I think it really, it tells us exactly what we need to know. And it gives us, in, in my humble opinion, a pretty good warning. The other lot are eager for you, but it's not in a good cause. They want to shut you out so that you will then be eager for them. So what is it these Christians, these ones trying to convince the Galatian churches that they need to obey Jewish law to be accepted? What is their solution to the problem of belonging? How would they provide the assurance that God accepts you as his children, no matter what? What is their prescription for unity in the early Christian church? For a sense of safety in a scary world, a world where they could very, very realistically be beaten and persecuted and even killed. It's definitely not faith in Jesus alone now and in the world to come. Their solution is to cut it off to cut off what doesn't conform to the law for fear that God won't actually accept you on this new basis. Because how could God be that good? How could his freedom be that real? Their warning is that unless we do, we don't belong and we're shut out. But then who's the gatekeeper? Then who gets to decide who belongs? Conveniently, it's them. They're the ones who get to decide what rules we're keeping and which ones we're throwing away and to whose benefit. That definitely didn't end with the early church. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Yep. Given this method, it's not the father who's doing the adopting. It's not. And this is why Paul is at a complete loss and probably why we should be. Because circumcision does nothing to control or change our circumstances or tame an unruly world. 
Avoiding unclean foods doesn't give us certainty or assurance that we're God's children. And frankly, sometimes this thing that we call Christianity or being part of the church or following Jesus doesn't immediately alleviate the things that make us afraid and weak and vulnerable. And sometimes the pattern of the church looks a lot more like Jewish Christian converts trying to get their non-Jewish Christian converts to conform to their culture and means of following God that they're familiar and comfortable with and safe. And sometimes we see change with that and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we languish in those things. And sometimes there's no guarantee that they're going to end. But we do have a guarantee. In Jesus, whose exodus leads us out of this slavery, of needing to justify ourselves and to find our place in this family. Because of Jesus, because of him, we are guaranteed to belong. And there's nothing left to prove. And if the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.